1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our exploration of invertebrate emotions. In the last episode, we talked about the paper Nautilus or the Argonaut. We read that great Marianne Moore poem. Uh, We talked about what emotions are, the difficulties in studying them, and we talked uh, about anecdotes, about people really seeing personality, character, and emotion in octopuses, Uh, but then also scientific studies looking for certain types of measurable cognitive effects of emotions or emotion-like states in invertebrates like bees. Uh, We talked about the the judgment bias test and how bees might have biases that come about uh, in optimistic or pessimistic ways based on how they're, quote, feeling.
1: Yeah. A big part of the conversation last episode was, I think, ultimately about stripping down emotion to something that doesn't depend upon the subjective human experience. And in doing so, something that um, I don't mean, mean may want to make it sound like we're oh we're just we're we're cutting out all the important stuff. I think a lot of what we're cutting out is the um, the poetic stuff, the the the, the extra like self contemplation stuff, and getting down to the root of what is an emotional state. How does it affect? Um, our behavior and our expectations and then, you know, how do we see that echoed in other organisms?
0: Right. Well, we're cutting out, yeah, by cutting out the subjective element, we're cutting out the part that would be impossible to study in other animals and just trying to say, what are emotional states as manifested externally?
1: Yeah. But then, of course, the difficulty as we discussed is, by taking out the subjective aspect of it, we're taking out the part that is closest to us and the thing that you instantly think about when we even say the word emotion.
0: Yeah, of course. Sweet emotion. (laughs) Oh no. That song fills me with bad emotions. Did you oh I don't know if I've ever gotten to do this rant before. Do you all know I hate Aerosmith?
1: Oh no. no. Well, I think you may have mentioned it once in passing. Yeah. Even even the early
0: stuff? I don't know. I mean I can be that classic rock radio uncle, like, you know, when Led Zeppelin comes on, I'm like, yeah, feel it. But I don't know. That something about Aerosmith just turns my head three hundred and sixty degrees. <laughs>
1: Well, I have to admit to really liking Dream On. If I hear that one on classic rock radio, I'll I'll tune in and listen. Well, I'm glad you like it.
0: (laughs) Hey, folks. This is Joe, from the future, swooping in to alter the past. Uh, Sorry about the audio, but I realized on listening back to this episode that in our excitement about the topic, we forgot to reintroduce the paper that we were talking about in the first episode, and that we're going to be talking about throughout this one as well. So that paper was by Clint J. Perry and Luigi Bacciadonna, and it's called Studying Emotion in Invertebrates, What Has Been Done, What Can Be Measured, and What They Can Provide. It was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology in 2017. Okay, now back to our original conversation. (laughs) <laughs> okay, but uh, so the last time we, we talked about one of the main three branches of external ways of studying emotions in animals. We talked about, uh, you know, that there there are perhaps cognitive effects of emotions, that emotions affect how you perceive the world and how you think, that there are behavioral tests of emotions, that emotions affect how you act, and that there are physiological tests of emotions, that uh, emotions affect involuntary physical reactions in the body. And we last time we looked at cognition, this time we're going to look at the other two. So the first would be behavioral tests, behavioral signs of emotional states. And one of the things that I think we should first acknowledge is that I'd say this is the primary way that we sense emotions in other people. What do people usually do with their bodies, especially their faces, when they're feeling various emotions? Uh, but as the authors point out, quite helpfully, they say, quote, invertebrates lack the facial musculature for any real type of comparisons to be made in this regard. So I think the, the jury is in. You can't tell if a hornet is smiling. You, you can't tell if there's disgust on the face of that crab.
1: Yeah, I mean as if a crab had a face anyway, right? Um <laughs> But my my, my <laughs> you're flogging that horse again. <laughs> oh, no, it's not really a horse I flog. Uh, but no, no, no. Actually, you're right. I think I'd agree. The crab. I don't know. Crabs pushing it. I don't know if a crab has a face. <laughs> yeah, I mean. It definitely has the front of a head uh-huh. but the, that front of a head with the crab is not really it's not used for communication crabs depend on sound as well as you know claw waving and overall movement displays general body language but predominantly sound is uh, their their form of communication the wasp for their part uh, they depend primarily on smell for communication we got into that a little bit in the last episode with, uh, with bees right so their communication sense realm is not really our own um, they exist in a and in a different realm in that regard.
0: Right, but the behavioral effects of underlying emotional states are not limited to facial expressions alone just because that's maybe the main way we see emotions in other people. Uh, The authors write, quote, a substantial amount of work in mammals has utilized other bodily expressions and motor behavior in response to stimuli to assess both valence, meaning the pleasantness, and intensity, meaning the level of arousal of emotions.
1: And and I really think the horse is a great example of this for a couple of reasons. First of all, the horse Horse is an animal that, is, that lives in close proximity to humans, that is uh, adored by humans, that is, that is often you know, championed as being this you know, Next to the dog and you know, the cat, I guess, it is, it is a friend of humanity. Mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, My wife, uh, being super into horses uh, and uh, pretty knowledgeable about them, she's, she's told me about some of this before, uh, but I, I, was, uh, I also looked up a source on this for this episode, How to Read Your Horse's Body Language by Jennifer Williams, PhD, for Equus Magazine and uh, uh, Williams points out that if a novice were to view a skilled horse trainer in action, they might well guess that this individual is psychic or has some sort of mystical Cormac-McCarthian connection to the soul of the horse, you know, the deep, dark, mystical soul of the horse. But it's really all about knowing how to read the these other signs, the overall body language of the horse and then these other sort of Non facial or semi facial cues.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, think if you're a dog person, if you've got a dog in your house, think mm. about like how finely attuned you are to your dog's feelings, levels of excitement, uh, motivations, and and quote emotional states. What you know, something that is analogous to these emotional states. Uh, that that if somebody who had never met a dog before or hadn't spent much time around dogs saw you interacting with your dog, they might well think the same thing. You
1: must be psychic. Yeah. But no, a lot of it is about picking up on all of this language or indeed just knowing what to look for. So in the the case of the horse, for instance, um, ear position is very important. This is one of the apparently the first things you you tend to learn about. about understanding a horse's emotional state. So the the ears may face forward, meaning they're interested. They may be pinned back, meaning they're angry and they're prone to bite or act, you know, aggressively slash defensively. They might be turned out to the side, meaning they're relaxed. They might be turned back but not pinned, and this means they're listening to something behind them, and it also means they might decide they need to turn around to go look at it, and horses being large animals, it's something to be aware of. Uh, And then they also might be rapidly swiveling, uh, meaning... uh, That they are anxious or they're you know at a high level of alertness, Mm -hmm. but then on top of that, there's also head carriage, head maybe lowered, elevated, snaking. You have to consider foreleg and hind leg movement and position, muzzle activity, uh, which this some of this gets more in line with what you might expect from a face. You know, like what are the nostrils doing? Uh, You know, what what's the mouth doing? What are they doing with their teeth? That sort of thing. There is a certain level of like, what are their eyes doing? Uh, You know, to, to someone that doesn't really know anything about horses, it's easy to sort of think of the eyes as being sort of like big, empty glasses without a lot of emotion, but there is stuff you can read into it. There's the movement of the tail, and then there's just general whole body stuff, like what is the overall bodily tension of the animal how is it how is it moving and uh, and you can read, take all of that and read into the emotional state of the horse but if you just look at you know what you might be tempted to call the face of the horse you're not necessarily going to pick up on, on all those cues you have and i think part of this too gets we have to think about the human situation so clearly humans have body language mm. you know there's more than just the the facial communication array with human beings totally but we do depend on the facial communication array a lot, and we do fixate on it to a very large degree mm-hmm. but uh, basically, what i 'm trying to say using the horses as an example that there are there there are various parts of an organism that you can look to. To, uh, to figure out what their emotional state is. And it may or may not be something uh, that matches up with the human idea, idea of a face.
0: Yes. Uh, so what would be some of these external behaviors that we could measure in invertebrates? One of the most obvious behavioral signs of underlying emotional states in animals is retreat behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, like in fear or anxiety, animals will retreat. Retracting or covering vulnerable body parts Adopting defensive posture and running away. This is, these are some of the clearest ones to look for in all of animal behavior. And so the first example cited by the authors here looks at exactly that, and it's actually a study we've already mentioned on this show before. It came up in our episodes titled Devourer of Memories. Oh, uh, yeah. Remember that about uh, about the planaria and the and the research about whether you could gain somebody's memories by eating their body. Uh, so in this episode, the, we mentioned a study about a type of large sea slug called the California sea hare or A. Plasia californica. Uh, and in that other episode, the study came up because it demonstrated associative learning and classical conditioning in an invertebrate sea slug. So uh, you offer a sea hare some delicious shrimp extract. Mm. <laughs> but in the test group, while the sea hare is munching on the shrimp extract, it gets an electric shock to the head. The, this painful stimulus results in not a frown, of course, but measurable behaviors in the slug. It withdraws its head. It withdraws its siphon. It inks and it moves away from the shrimp e- extract. Uh, and sure enough, if you train it on these associated when simply – when the uh, animals from the test group are simply presented with shrimp extract, they will pull back the siphon and move away.
1: By the way, sea hair and the electric shrimp extract uh, would be a great name for a band. i just going to put that out there. I think that was a Bob Weir side
0: project. Was it wasn't. Okay. Yeah. Um, But whether or not it makes sense to use the same word we use uh, for emotions in other mammals, quote, the observed behavioral responses to conditioned stimuli resemble the actions of conditioned fear in mammals – subjectively, it might not make sense to talk about fear in a sea slug. We don't know. But it certainly behaviorally looks like fear. It looks like the same thing we recognize as fear in mammals or in other humans. Because, of course, nothing about the shrimp extract itself causes pain. It couldn't be a simple stimulus response. It has to be this association with pain, the memory of, you know, the fear caused by the memory – And a lot of invertebrate studies into emotions look for signs of fear because fear is easier to study. Uh, Presumable fear-inducing stimuli are relatively easy to create and behavioral responses are relatively easy to detect. There's another example that the authors cite here, uh, which is fear research into Drosophila, also known commonly as fruit flies or as vinegar flies, small fruit flies. Uh, this is an extremely common organism for lab research. You'll find tons of studies uh, modeling other things in complex organisms as they appear in Drosophila. So in 2015, Gibson et al. studied fear in Drosophila uh, caused by the stimulus of an overhead shadow, they used a rotating opaque paddle. I don't know if it was a ping pong paddle, but <laughs> I kind of hope it was. It was some kind of paddle that would be made to rotate in a circle and in in a steady progression, repeat passages over a container of these these flies that would be, say, eating a food source or something. And the authors found that multiple repetitive exposures to this overhead shadow caused the flies to fly around more, to hop more, to freeze more, and to fly away from a food source – And there was evidence in this study that the passing shadow led to a generalized internal state. The more times the shadow passed over, the more avoidance responses happened. So it looks like within the flies, it wasn't just stimulus response. The shadow passes, then you fly away. If you are repeatedly subjected to this stress-inducing stimulus, the flies appear to enter a state where they're just They're just in a semi-permanent way agitated. Ah. They're flying around. they're, They're leaving the food source. It looks like they have the internal state of being afraid. And the avoidance responses remained uh, remained more elevated even after the stimulus stopped. The shadow would stop passing over and for some time afterward the flies acted more agitated, more likely to fly away from the food source than flies with less exposure to the shadow. And this makes it seem as if the avoidance reactions were not just the direct immediate response to the shadow but also influenced by this internal state within the flies' nervous systems, which is similar to how fear works in humans and other vertebrates. Something jumps out and scares you, you have an immediate response. Maybe you shriek, maybe you pee a little, you know, maybe maybe you jump. But then you also remain in a state. You're on edge for several minutes afterwards showing these anxiety behaviors even when the scary thing is gone or no longer represents a threat. Uh, Unfortunately, this is a lot of how we live our lives actually, right? Like there's something that kind of like Startles you, gets you on edge, and maybe it's not even something that would be a physical threat. Maybe it's just a conceptual threat. You know, you get an email or a tweet or anything that kind of puts you on edge, and then you just stay that way for a good long while.
1: Yeah, yeah, all, all day generally. Yeah, what happens when you reach for your phone first thing in the morning, right? <laughs> And I think that that's an important thing.
0: It calls to uh, to attention the difference between fear and anxiety. Fear, of course, is a response to the perception of an immediate threat, a clear and present danger, and it results mostly in escape behaviors by animals you are trying mm-hmm. to you know defend yourself and get away, whereas anxiety is related to fear but slightly different. Fear is a response to the clear and present danger. Anxiety is a response to ambiguous, imagined, or potential threats, mm-hmm. when there's a threat that's not necessarily right in front of you, but you imagine it might be waiting nearby. It might be around the corner.
1: Yeah, it's kind of uh, lurking in the, the the information sphere around you, as opposed to being right there in front of you. Uh, and and of course, uh, yeah, bringing it back to the human experience, we have no shortage of fears just sort of rotating around us in the information sphere.
0: And this state of anxiety actually brings us to the crawdads. I knew mean, we promised we'd would get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: aka crayfish, aka mudbugs. Did you call, grow up calling them mudbugs? No, uh, this is what I've just heard them called. Um, oh, okay. Did you catch them in the creek? No, I ne- I was never around them growing up. But I have oh. family that lives in uh, Southern Mississippi, and uh, you know they're they're all about them. Uh, <laughs> Uh, down there. Uh, in fact, I've been to, and, and this will this will be a, like an image to come back to as we discuss their possible emotional states. I went to a Mardi Gras parade, not the main Mardi Gras parade, but a like, you know, one leading up to it in Southern Mississippi. And there were like games where live crawfish were, were thrown uh, by children. Like they would throw crawfish back and forth at each other and then occasionally fall onto the concrete and all. And, uh, yeah. At the time, I thought it was weird and kind of barbaric. So maybe I'll feel even more so as we discuss their 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 inner emotional states here.
0: Oh, It gets turned inward as well, though. Did you ever play the game? I assume you didn't. You, or see people play the game where you just let a crawdad pinch you?
1: No. <laughs> you just
0: like let it pinch your nose or your finger or something? No. Did
1: you do this growing up? Uh, no, but I had friends who did. Ah, where Was this in Tennessee? They were crawl, crawdads just in the creeks? Well, the creeks? I guess
0: they were probably a different species. Yeah. I'm not quite sure uh, than the one we're about to talk about. But the, yeah, there was some kind okay. of crayfish-shaped organism living in the creeks, freshwater creeks. Yeah.
1: Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. My main experience with them is just uh, occasionally eating them as an adult. Um, but that's about it. I never got to like play with them as a child. But for anyone out there who does, doesn't still doesn't know what we're talking about, it's essentially a small crustacean, like a fresh, a small freshwater, generally lobster, right? Yeah,
0: tiny lobster. Uh, the specific uh, uh, species that's going to come up in the in the research we're getting to is Procambarus clarki. And yes, these are the crawfish of the famed Louisiana crawfish boil. So I don't know if they were uh, if they were boiled up with some Zatarans and eaten after the test. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Zatarans. Uh, uh, I should also add, though, that sometimes you'll see crayfish in um, aquarium settings, and they can be quite beautiful as well. So, uh-huh. so you know, I don't think human – humans – Humanity's relationship with the crayfish is mostly uh, uh, mostly something re- that revolves around eating them, but sometimes you'll see them as pets. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, to come back to the idea of uh, anxiety, we were talking about the difference between fear and anxiety. You know, fe- we're saying fear often results in escape behaviors. Anxiety is often thought to result in conservative or defense behavior, Uh, for example, to limit openness and to limit exploratory behavior. Animals in an anxious state are more likely to seek out closed, familiar and protected environments, whereas animals in a non-anxious state are more likely to explore unfamiliar and open environments. Uh, And one type of experiment— that has been used to study anxiety in animals like rats and mice and now in crayfish is the elevated plus maze. So, Robert, did you ever seen one of these before?
1: Uh, I don't think I'd encountered one of these before. uh, I don't remember encountering one in a study. I've certainly never been in one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you imagine a simple platform in the shape of a plus sign. Mm. You got
0: two arms of the plus sign that are enclosed by walls, and then the other two arms are open. They're just straight platforms without walls. And uh, this shows up in all kinds of studies. How an animal moves within an elevated plus maze or EPM can be manipulated by lots of variables that are thought to control anxiety. The more time the animal spends in the closed section, enclosed by the walls, you know, sort of protected and hidden, usually the more anxious it is thought to be. And many animals, uh, maybe most small animals, tend to prefer dark enclosed places. These are the types of places that they are more likely to be protected from predators in their natural environments. Like the rat in your house, it likes to hide inside the walls and behind the fridge and stuff. It doesn't like to hang out in the middle of the
1: floor, right? Yeah, like wide open spaces, that's where a a hawk can swoop down and pick you up, that sort of thing.
0: Right. It will only venture out into the open spaces in order to explore and seek rewards. It might go out there if there's food in the middle of the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it sees something scary, what does it do? It runs to an enclosed space. The more an animal like a rat has an induced state of anxiety due to an ambiguous or possible threat, the more it will tend to confine itself to dark, enclosed spaces. And conversely, the less anxiety it has, the more it will feel free to explore open spaces. Uh, And the EPM is widely used in studying animal anxiety and in the testing of anti-anxiety medications – uh, now, here's where the crawdads come in. Okay. So the elevated plus maize has been widely used in anxiety research, like we're saying. Uh, and almost all of these studies have been on vertebrates. But since 2014, there have been at least two studies using the plus maize test on crayfish. Again, this is Procambarus clarky. And the updated design used an elevated plus maze submerged in water with the enclosed arms shaded so that they were dark because uh, in their protected environments, the the crayfish like dark places. That's a natural defensive preference they have. So there were a couple of studies. One was Fawcett et al. in 2014 and one was Bakwe Casanave et al. in 2017. And they, they both found that if you subjected the crayfish to frightful stimuli Ahead of time, they would spend more time in the shielded, dark, enclosed uh, areas of the elevated plus maze. So the examples were mildly painful shocks and harassment by a larger crawfish. (laughs) Uh, So like if you take a smaller crayfish and then subject it to a bigger one doing dominance displays, the one, the little one, the one that is being harassed, will tend to spend more time in the enclosed area and less time exploring the open platforms. And the authors write, quote, These behavioral results fulfill criteria normally designated for anxiety in mammals, including being innate, being unconditioned, occurring in the absence of a stressor, and expressed in a novel context.
1: All right. So in this experiment, we see the evidence that – uh, a, a crayfish, something we don't think of as having emotional states, uh, really ultimately has something very similar to the, the, the fear that is experienced by a mouse or a rat and therefore very similar to what we experience.
0: Right, so it's not just stimulus response. I mean mm-hmm. you could, you might imagine that an animal without emotional states could, say, retreat in the immediate term mm-hmm. from something that's threatening it by going into an enclosed space. But even afterwards, it seems to remain in this internal state where it prefers to stay in the closed protected spaces and does less exploring than a control crayfish if it has at some recent time been threatened or harassed. Wait, I mean, it sounds like a familiar story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, like I say, if, if we take away sort of the, the holy human qualities of fear uh, and, and look at it objectively, uh, like that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at the fear of the crawfish. Well,
0: maybe we should take a quick break and then when we come back, we can discuss the joy of the fire ant.
1: All right, we're back.
0: So the authors of this uh, study we've been looking at point out one shortcoming of the existing body of research on animal emotions and it's that it is as on the whole overly focused on negative emotions – Quote, it is argued that the reasons that positive emotions have been neglected in research are because they are few in number, reflected even in the imbalance of English language words for negative over positive emotions, and are harder to differentiate. The asymmetry might also stem from our understanding that natural selection has shaped emotions more for survival than for prosperity. There are many more threats than treats in our environment." (laughs) Uh, Also, they point out that if we're looking for tests mirroring work done on humans, most psychological and clinical work in the history of science has been focused on solving problems rather than on studying ways in which people are doing fine. Uh, All of which I think is probably true. I mean, I think all of those reasons are valid. But despite these limitations, it would be great to have more research attempting to understand positive emotions or the states analogous to positive emotions in non-human animals and invertebrates. Like it's just kind of a bummer and kind of limiting when it's overwhelmingly research on fear and aversion.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point about like even the, the, the English language uh, bias for negativity uh, as opposed to positivity. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think of going to uh, our, our neighborhood, uh, really the, the only uh, – video rental store in the city or oh, the yeah. state, uh, Videodrome, uh, Videodrome has a sizable horror selection, and I, I love to lose <laughs> myself in it. But what is the opposite of the horror section? Uh, there's not really one, I guess, with the maybe the comedies, but- or The Robert, Robert
0: Altman section? Oh. Maybe. But,
1: but, I mean, even, you know, any comedy, any drama, anything that's not like straight up, like little kids cinema- mm. Uh, I mean, to whatever extent that exists, like anything that's not just teletubbies is mm. going to have risk and danger and these negative emotions that are there to at least propel the uh, corresponding positive ones.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and I think the point they're making is a good one. that It's not necessarily that there's more, you know, uh, negative emotion than positive emotion in human life, but that for some reason we're, more, we're happier to let positive emotions all kind of blend together and be the same thing. Mm. They're all just, you know, there, there are millions in different forms of happiness and joy but we don't have as many differentiated words for those states you know Uh, whereas you know we're we're very into getting down in the nitty gritty of different types of ways to feel bad
1: well I guess one of the it kind of comes back a little bit probably to something we've discussed before the idea that when you're happy if you contemplate Uh, about your happiness if you stop to consider your happiness then it goes away right Uh, but if you don't need to
0: think about it too much (laughs) yeah
1: you don't really have enough time to get too nuanced in the language Uh, whereas a negative a good negative emotion will just really sit there and you can get to know it you can You can really, uh, you know, formalize your relationship with it. Yeah.
0: Now, on the other hand, there have been a few studies that have gone against this trend of focusing overwhelmingly on negative emotions in these animal studies. Uh, For example, in the last episode, we talked about the one cognitive test, the judgment bias test that at least appeared to show the cognitive effects of something like pleasure or happiness in the bumblebee. You remember it was like if you give the bumblebee a free treat, give it some free sugar, it will Tend after that to at least appear to have an optimistic bias to interpret ambiguous information as, as being something good or approachable. Mm-hmm. The next line of research involves a behavior in ants that some researchers think may be associated with an internal state analogous to happiness or joy. Oh, wow. Uh, so what might the dreaded fire ant have in common with your favorite cute puppy? Wagging,
1: butt wagging. Ah, do tell, do tell.
0: All right. So the red imported fire ant or Solenopsis invicta has displayed a very interesting behavior observed uh, by a number of researchers reported in a study in 2016 by uh, Debbie Castle, Christa Ford, Liu Hyun, Uh, Daniel Schiffman and S. Bradley Vinson called a study on abdominal wagging in the fire ant Solenopsis invicta with speculation on its meaning in the Journal of Bioeconomics uh, 2016. So the researchers were just watching lots of hours of video taken from inside a fire ant nest. And from these observations, they started to notice a pattern of behavior where the ants inside the nest would basically stick their butt up in the air and wave it around Quote, they position and move their abdomen up and down at forty five degrees, and they called this behavior wagging. now, raising and wiggling the abdomen has uses in other contexts for fire ants. You may have seen fire ants doing this uh, defensively. the abdomen or back segment of the body is also known as a gaster. Which is a great like Charles Dickens name, you know, yeah. like like William Gaster. Uh, and outside the nest, the behavior is known as Gaster flagging. Though flagging usually involves raising the abdomen up higher, something more like ninety degrees. Flagging is apparently used during foraging to disperse venom into the air and it's believed to deter other insects like competitor ants from the foraging area. So you're out trying to gather food for the colony and then some other ants come in. You will stick your butt up in the air and and spit some venom out into the air to try to drive the other ants off. There's also some evidence that some abdominal wagging or gaster flagging emits a sound uh, as the gaster joint rubs across itself, and this would be a tiny high-pitched squeak. Uh, we're not sure what role this sound plays, but it's possible that it has, a, it has a role in communication, such as calling for help when an ant is trapped or when it's in trouble. However, Castle et al. believed that in their observations, the inside-the-nest wagging behavior was not defensive in any way. Within the nest, they found that the wagging emitted neither sound nor venom, no squeaks, no toxins, and the stinger was never extended during this period. So if they're just wagging around and it has nothing to do with the other types of wagging that these ants normally do, what's going on? Furthermore, they found that the inside nest wagging happened primarily when the ants were engaged in two activities, eating sugar, or tending to the brood, in other words, taking care of the young.
1: Well, those are two pleasurable experiences just for uh, humans.
0: Sure. And they did not find any evidence of nestmates reacting to the wagging. So they couldn't detect any role for communication in the wagging. So what's it for? Well, the authors hypothesized that, quote, this in-nest behavior might be analogous to facial expressions and bodily postures of hedonic pleasure in humans and other mammals during pleasurable events. So that's a very interesting idea. Perhaps a fire ant smiles by wagging its gaster in the air. Now, we should definitely acknowledge and the researchers do acknowledge that this is far from proven. There are a few other possibilities too. Maybe the wagging is some kind of mechanical reaction in the body to certain uses of the mouth parts. The mouth parts would be engaged during eating or during tending to the brood. Maybe something's happening that just happens to make their butt wiggle in the air at the same time. So it would help if this could be paired with other types of tests. For example, would consuming sugar water or tending to the brood also cause the fire ants to have an optimistic bias in judgment bias tests. That would probably strengthen the case for this wagging as a bodily expression of something like pleasure or
1: happiness. But I love the
0: possibility. Maybe the ant smiles with its butt.
1: Huh. But again, this would, this would come down to a, uh, some physical body language that is observable that would potentially demonstrate the emotional state of the creature.
0: Right, and it would be helpful if you could pair it with other things that were presumed to be associated with that same state. Uh, Now, another one about positive emotions uh, comes back to bumblebees, which we mentioned in the last episode. Remember earlier, there was this research seeming to indicate that giving a bumblebee some free sugar would result in an optimistic bias in these cognitive tests. Another test on bumblebees looked at the effects of sugar water on behavior after a stressful event. So in the wild, uh, bumblebees are subject to ambushes by certain sit and wait predators, such as the crab spider. Have you ever seen a crab spider in action?
1: Hmm, I'm not sure that I have.
0: Well, So they they will tend to wait on a flower uh, and they'll just kind of blend in there among the petals. Uh, They've got these wide legs uh, for a big hug. And then when the the bee lands on the flower to try to get some nectar, the crab spider will grab it with its legs and try to bite down and, and kill it. And a lot of times in natural encounters, the bee is briefly captured by the spider but then manages to escape. So in a 2016 experiment, Perry et al. created a simulation of a crab spider attack by putting together a mechanism that would ambush and trap a bumblebee for three seconds before releasing it unharmed. Now, obviously, after a stressful brush with death like this, the bee will take some time before it again begins to forage and start landing on flowers and stuff. And what Perry et al. found was that a treat of sugar water given before the attack would shorten the duration of this cool-down period after the spider attack. So if a bee gets a sweet treat – Before a simulated spider attack, it takes the bee less time to reinitiate landing on flowers and feeding after this stressful event. Now, again, there could be other interpretations of what's happening here. Maybe somehow the nutrition and the sugar makes the bee physically stronger and less vulnerable, etc. Maybe something like that. But one possibility is that the pleasurable stimuli of the sugar water puts the bee in something analogous to a better mood or emotional state, making it more resilient to stressful setbacks. Which I think is something that we're probably all familiar with uh, ourselves, right? You know that your emotional state is uh, dictates strongly how you will react to negative incoming events.
1: Right, right.
0: The same thing that floors you one day will just kind of bounce off you another.
1: Right, right. Or if you've had a particularly bad day, then bad news is going to you know have a, a more negative effect on your well being. Right. Uh, Now, the authors
0: identify vocalizations and sound as a possibly very fruitful uh, behavioral avenue for future research in invertebrate emotions, noting that Charles Darwin himself speculated in 1872 that, quote, insects might potentially communicate emotions such as anger, terror, jealousy, and love through their stridulation, you know, the (laughs) the great rubbing together sounds that insects make. So, what does a jealous cricket sound like?
1: I'm not sure, but it's easy to imagine all the various anthropomorphic uh, interpretations regarding our our ideal cartoon cricket, I'm sure.
0: Do you ever remember how in the original uh, Pinocchio, Pinocchio kills the cricket with a hammer? What? (laughs) Yeah. The the
1: cartoon or
0: just the story? No, 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 not in the movie. The the movie changed it and made it nicer. In the original story –
1: Jiminy yeah. Cricket? Yeah. Oh, man. I
0: don't remember if he's named Jiminy Cricket. I think he's just a magic cricket and Pinocchio
1: kills him with a hammer. Uh, I did not know that. I mean,
0: P- that. Pinocchio's in one of his bad phases.
1: Uh, you know, I don't think I like Pinocchio. <laughs> I, don't have a lot, I don't have a strong affinity for the Disney version either. The only thing that I have a strong affinity for is Jiminy Cricket's role in the Mickey Christmas Carol in which he plays, what, the ghost of— Christmas Past, I believe. I don't I don't know if I've ever seen this. Oh, you should see it. It's like 30 minutes long, and it's it's a pretty good uh, streamlined adaptation of A Christmas Carol.
0: Oh, I'm sure it's better than the other 30-minute version of A Christmas Carol I've seen, which is called The Christmas Carol, and it's narrated by Vincent Price. It's very bad.
1: Oh, man. Well, later this year, when Christmas rolls around again, I, th- I think we should do an episode on A Christmas Carol. I think there's a lot to discuss there.
0: Okay. Well, maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can talk about physiological tests.
1: All right, we're back. So we're entering the final phase here. We're going to be discussing physiological tests for emotion.
0: Right. So we've talked about cognitive tests. We've talked about behavioral tests. Physiological tests for emotion – uh, in people, they look for correlates between reported emotional states and automatic responses in the body. So, for example, somebody jumps out at you with a werewolf mask, you're not just going to jump back. It's not just going to maybe give you a pessimistic bias, but you will also have increased heart rate, release of stress hormones like norepinephrine and cortisol, dilation of the pupils in the eye. You might pee a bit, you know, yeah. a, a bunch of stuff.
1: Well, I a lot of this is because it's not just that you saw a werewolf. It's that your body is preparing you to fight a werewolf. Wolf or run from a werewolf. Right. The fight or flight response kicks in and, and
0: it entails this cascade of automatic reactions in the body, things that you don't control behaviorally. They just happen without your say-so. And these physiological responses can usually be measured objectively pretty easily, which is very handy. However, physiological responses alone can be – they can be hard to use to identify individual emotions. For example, if you're measuring a heart rate – Heart rate might increase in response to anxiety or to joy. The fact that the heart speeds up its beating tells you there's some kind of arousal, but it doesn't necessarily tell you which one. Yeah, the the, the, person's heart could just be full of song. Right. So sometimes if you look at uh, enough different physiological responses at the same time and compare them, you can start to zero in on specific emotions, but not always – Uh, And just like it's hard to translate research on human facial expressions to invertebrates, it's also hard to do so with human physiological responses to emotions. Uh, The authors write, quote, Most of these types of measurements are quite difficult to apply to invertebrates given their often miniature size and hard carapace and, in the case of insects, an open circulatory system where heart rate is not increased. But there has been some interesting research nonetheless. So they cite a bunch of it uh, just to pick out a couple of examples. Kita et al. in 2011 did research on fear conditioning, this time in pond snails. A very expressive species. <laughs> uh, they conditioned the pond snails with an association between sugar water, which normally you give some you give some uh, sugar water to them and they will start feeding behaviors. But they negatively conditioned this with potassium chloride associations. And potassium chloride causes withdrawal of the body into the shell. Uh, not only did fear conditioning work, the snails began to react to the sugar by withdrawing, But physiological monitoring also found that conditioned exposure to the sugar caused the heart to skip a beat, Hmm. quote, suggesting physiological responses similar to fear in mammals. So you train them to associate potassium chloride, this noxious chemical, with the sugar. Then later, you just present them with sugar. Not only do they not go for the sugar, it makes their heart skip a beat. Though I do think it's interesting to note potassium chloride is literally a heart-stopping poison. It's been used uh, to cause cardiac arrest and lethal injections. Uh, Of course, there was no potassium chloride in the sugar once it was conditioned, but maybe that's just a coincidence.
1: But the idea is that when presented with the the sugar, then after being exposed to the potassium chloride, there is this this moment of – physiological fear in response.
0: Right, the the body reacts in a way similar to mammals reacting to the werewolf mask, but this time it's just sugar that the snail has come with training to associate with a bad chemical. Uh, So it seems that the majority of research on physiological correlates of invertebrate emotions has to do with the presence of what are called biogenic amines, which are thought to play a major, if not comprehensive role in the creation and control of emotions in the human brain, especially the hormones and neurotransmitters serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline. Now, uh, as important as these three substances clearly are in our emotional lives, unfortunately, it is not as simple as saying one is a happiness drug in the body and one is a fear drug, etc., cetera. They play complex interacting roles in everything from attention and arousal to reward motivation and sleep. And the manipulation of emotions is generally not as simple as just saying like, well, you need more of one of these things. But manipulating the presence of one or more of these neurotransmitters can have some measurable effects on emotions. Uh, For example, invertebrate nervous systems also appear to make use of these biogenic amines uh, or analogs to them. For example, in bees, the hormone octopamine appears to play a role similar to that of noradrenaline in humans. And so they cite one possible example of these physiological parallels. Quote, Bateson and colleagues in 2011 assessed how systemic biogenic amine levels changed in response to a presumed negative emotional event. Hemolymph – and remember, that's like uh, insect blood. Right. He- Hemolymph was collected from honeybees after simulating a predator attack, shaking bees on a vortex for 60 seconds. And this is like the thing we talked about in the last episode where you'd shake the colony to simulate an attack by a honey badger. Uh, picking up with the quote – Analysis of the hemolymph using high performance liquid chromatography, or HPLC, showed that systemic levels of the biogenic amines dopamine, octopamine, chemi- chemically sim- similar to noradrenaline, and serotonin all decreased in response to bees being shaken vigorously. In humans, it seems that depletion of biogenic amines, serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine, is responsible for features of depression in the monamine h- hypothesis of depression. And also, in twenty. 20- 2014, Fawcett and colleagues uh, reportedly used chemical manipulation of serotonin levels to alter anxiety-associated behaviors of uh, crayfish, like in the plus maze scenario. One last one, uh, Perry et al. in 2016 found that manipulation of dopamine levels seemed to affect the apparent positive emotional state of bumblebees. Uh, Remember the sugar causing the bumblebees to have an optimistic bias. Well, here, quote, The optimistic behavior seen in the judgment bias test in response to pretest sugar reward was abolished when the bees were topically treated with the dopamine receptor antagonist flufinazine. And apparently the same treatment eliminated the positive effect of pretest sugar during the simulated attack by a crab spider. So if you do something to this insect's dopamine levels by, by putting in this disruptor of dopamine, uh, you somehow seem to interfere with the bee's ability to have an optimistic bias in response to getting some sugar.
1: Interesting. So basically the more we reveal about sort of the underlying chemistry – of these emotional states uh, as, as they are in humans and as they are in these various invertebrate species. It, it just it reveals that, yeah, we, we have emotional states occurring in these organisms. At least the physiological correlates of them, yeah. Right, right. Again, uh, yeah, we can't begin to get into the, the subjective uh, right. aspect of it, which, you know, may – you know, very – I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that whatever a crawfish is experiencing as fear is different than what a human is experiencing as fear. It, right. can't, it can't contemplate the fear at the same level that, that a human can, but the, like the, the, the root of it, like the root chemical and physi- physiological um, manifestation of that emotion is essentially the same.
0: Right, and I think now we've seen uh, maybe not conclusive, but pretty good evidence in three different branches—not just the physiological, which we were just talking about, but earlier the cognitive and in the behavioral spheres. And I think we should emphasize again, you know, what you're getting at. None of these tests are perfect. Even if all the results are robust, replicable, they hold up over time, they still don't necessarily tell us anything about what it's like to be a bumblebee or a crayfish. I think there's always going to be that gap that we are perhaps jumping with the rocket boots of anthropological projection, But for now, experiments like these are the best evidence we have to try to figure out what kinds of emotions, if any, are present in insects, crustaceans, gastropods and all manner of creatures without a spine. And those things we learn could be very helpful in helping us understand how emotions in mammals, including humans, developed over evolutionary time because you know we, we look at modern invertebrates and see nervous systems you know the, their brain structure is very similar to what we think our ancestors may have had at certain times in history. We can learn what the chemical mechanisms of emotional motivation states are, how they came to be. Humans ain't crawdads, but crawdads can still teach us a lot, I think.
1: <laughs> now, uh, at this point, I, I bet one question a lot of people may have is, okay, well, what sorts of animals don't have emotions then? Like, is there is there any level that we can say, all right, here's the cutoff point? Um, you, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question to consider. Um, and I was poking around, and basically one thing I have to realize is that, in, like we said earlier, the quest for invertebrate uh, emotions is is not as expansive as uh, as other areas of emotional research certainly in in higher organisms so there's just a lot of data we don 't have um, so you know i don 't know when you get down to like single cell organisms i don 't see i, I didn't didn 't find any papers arguing for emotional states there no but, uh, and even in
0: weirdly like we think octopuses are more complex uh you know in terms of intelligence than these other than like insects mm-hmm. and crayfish are. But I wasn't really finding much in the way of studying emotions in octopuses. It hmm. was mostly in these simpler organisms. So yeah, there's clearly still lots of ground to cover.
1: Yeah. Now, I mean, but you know, it's one of the – I don't think anybody's actually arguing that, say, a slime mold has emotions either. But we have discussed in the show how a slime mold, a, uh, an organism without like a central nervous system, mm-hmm. is still able to learn. It's still engaging in things that are, are, are like problem solving. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stuff like that adds uh, some complexity to this question. But then another thing that came to mind, uh, plants. Uh, the topic itself, I think, we'll have to wait, wait for another episode. But plants can essentially hear, see, smell, and respond to stimuli, and they are, are according to uh, University of Missouri in Columbia plant science professor Jack C. Schultz, essentially quote just very slow animals, <laughs> um, which uh, which is it is it is hilarious. But at the same time, it uh, you know you 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 look at say time. Time lapse uh, footage of, say, vines mm-hmm. in action, and yes. uh, and flowers, and uh, and so forth. They're just the the, the movements of, uh, of of plants in general. And this does have, it seem to have a ring of truth to it. That this is this is an organism that is not as still as we uh, as we may think. Uh, we touched on this briefly in the, the recent Tolkien episode. You know, the mm-hmm. the idea of the ant, the moving tree, the tree that that thinks and reasons. Um, may not be as far fetched as uh, as some of us think but uh, as for emotions in plants uh, there's actually some fascinating research there as well but that is another story and shall be told another time okay so hopefully we gave everybody some food for thought here about our own emotional states what the human emotional state is and what it isn't and then to what degree we can perceive and attribute emotional states to other organisms, even the, you know, the, the lowly crawfish.
0: I mean, I wonder if understanding the way that uh, that anxiety might affect bees or crawfish or something like that could in a way help give you a foothold in controlling your own emotions. I mean, again, this is something we, we sort of began the last episode talking about how the emotions are from our brains. They are within us, but often it can feel as if we are in them. You know, they're right. the sea on which we're afloat and we have no power over them.
1: Right, or they're external forces like something from out of Greek mythology or, you know, some sort of a – a you know, a fundamentalist, um, uh, you know, Christian worldview, angel on one shoulder, devil on the other affecting mm-hmm. our mental states. But no, it's it's all within and it, is, and it is, you know, a part of the same navigation of reality that is taking place in all these other organisms as well. And yeah, therefore, if we demystify it a bit, if we sort of take a step back from it and in, and in fact increase awareness of what it is, mm-hmm. then yeah, that gives us, I think, a tremendous strength, you know? It keeps... Basically, keeping us, uh, uh, keeping our, our, our uh, irksome brains from deceiving ourselves about what we are.
0: You are that churning ocean,
1: yes. Which perhaps is some ambiguous information yeah. that you may either see in a negative or a positive light, depending oh. on your predisposition. <laughs> all right. So obviously, you all have emotions, uh, and you all have various interactions with animals be it a a dog, a cat, a horse, or a crayfish, or a a bee. Uh, So we would love to hear from everyone out there on the topic that we've discussed in these two episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, Hey, even if you have some thoughts about plants, go ahead ahead and uh, let us know about those. Uh, In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where can you find this show? Well, you can find this show anywhere you find podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Those are the acts that help us out.
0: Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.